Glad to be here with you all studying and reading the Word of God once again. And hopefully you got out and was able to enjoy some of today's beautiful day that we have. Have you ever had a conversation about your faith or about God with someone? And sometimes they might say something like, I like the God of the New Testament better than the God of the Old Testament because he seems nicer. Or why is the God of the Old Testament so angry all the time? Why can't he be loving and meek and mild just like the God of the New Testament? Or some even say, why does the, why does the Bible seem to promote slavery or violence? There's many other questions that we may get. And so when people ask us these questions, it may cause us to sometimes stop and think, maybe they're right about God. But tonight, I want to help you answer these questions, and I want to help you understand that there's not two different gods in the Bible. I want you to be able to also understand and answer common arguments that's made by skeptics. When we read through and study God's Word, we see what it actually reveals about God. And what it actually reveals about God in the Old and the New Testament, we see the same throughout. And he's never changing. That's one thing that we see about God all the time when we read from Genesis to Revelation. It's what we call immutable, which means that he does not change. We see the immutable of God all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, we see, the sa we see God the same that we do in the New Testament. We see that he's merciful. We see that he's kind. He's just, he's gracious, he's holy, but he's also wrathful against sin, and he desires all to come to repentance. And so within Christianity, there's what we call Christian apologetics. And many people who've never heard that term before might think of it as being that we apologizing for our faith or apologizing for what we believe in. But actually, the Greek term for this is called apologia, which gives us the English word apology. But Christian apologetics is not apologizing for what we believe in, but it's giving a defense of what we believe in. So basically what Christian apologetics is, is that it's a science of giving a defense of the Christian faith, defending what we believe as passionate followers of Christ and showing what we believe is real. It might be easier to think of apologetics as a defense lawyer giving a defense for his client, or even our children who try to give us a defense every time they do or they do not do something that we've asked. And so the key verse in the Bible for Christian apologetics is 1 Peter 3.15, and it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We must always be ready to give a defense or reason, which is a proper, well-reasoned reply. And we as passionate followers of Christ must be able to give an answer for our faith and the hope that we have that's in Christ Jesus. But I don't want you to misunderstand me either. If you're in a dialogue with someone and you don't know the answer, 
that's the best time to just graciously say to them something like, you know what, that's a great question. I'm not 100% sure about the answer, so I'm going to get back to you on that. Even though I love apologetics, there's some areas of apologetics where I'm a little bit more weaker at. And I don't know an answer for something. It's that time that I write it down, and then I go out and I find the answer, and then I give it to the person that's been asking me that question, and it's a great time for me to learn something new that I might not have already known. So I don't want to spend too much time on what apologetics is and what apologetics isn't. And maybe one day I can talk more depth about this important topic in the church. But one thing I have noticed when I first became very interested in Christian apologetics, I've noticed that many Christians think that only theologians or pastors or Bible professors are called to be Christian apologists. But that's not true at all. When we read through 1 Peter 3, 8 through 15, we can clearly see that all believers in Christ are apologists. We all must be able to give a defense of what we believe and why we believe it. And so it's when we use Christian apologetics that we're able to answer a lot of questions that we may get. And one of the questions that I want to talk about today is, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the Old Testament, or the New Testament. I was reading an interview, and when Billy Graham was asked the question, why does the Old Testament give the impression that God is harsh and unloving, but the New Testament reveals God as a loving and merciful God? Reverend Graham responded by saying, often people make judgments about the Bible without ever picking it up and reading it. These judgments are passed on to others and believed. It is man and not the Bible that needs correcting. We must discover the Bible for ourselves. Billy Graham was so accurate in these answers to this question. Many times what I found out is that when a skeptic brings something up, what the Bible has said, it's something that, or something that God did, it seems like they've never read it for themselves or they read the Bible verse completely out of context. And so Billy Graham continued and he said, there's a great deal of inaccurate teaching about the Bible portraying a different God. In the Old and New Testaments, too many people talk about the God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love and peace in the New Testament. But God is the same throughout the Bible. Yes, my friends, God is the same God that's in the Old Testament that's in the New Testament. Because in Malachi 3.6 we read, I am the Lord and I do not change. And then when we go to the New Testament, we read in Hebrews 13.8, we read that Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, the eternal Alpha and Omega, and God our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And so what we see is that we see that people change. We see that seasons change. Civilizations rise and they fall. Presidents and leaders, they come and go. But God will remain faithful. He will never break his promise to us. He will always be the same holy, righteous, and just God. And we can be thankful no matter how uncertain our lives look. We can trust in God's constant love and faithfulness. 
And so when we read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it tells us one true account of God redeeming imperfect people. And we also see throughout the Word of God that His character and nature is the same throughout. I wanted to give you several examples of these characters and the nature of God. And so in, the, in both the Old and the New Testament, we see that God is just. God is just. In Deuteronomy 32.4, we read this. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. So God is perfect. He's just and he's fair. I know when we see justice happen, it's very satisfying to us. If we see someone hurt or if we, we watch the news and we see that somebody that got hurt um, in the killer or, or somebody that got murdered and the killer was caught, you know, we expect justice to happen to that person. But we also see many things in the world that we may think is unjust. And many times we see someone get off for a crime or that they've committed and we think to ourselves, that wasn't right or that justice wasn't served there. But thankfully, we do serve a God who is perfectly just. And one day, he will perfectly and justly deal with all matters when he judges the world justly. You see, we see injustice from a limited perception. We don't see everything that God knows, and so it's hard for us to judge what we think is just or unjust accurately. It reminds me of a time when I was a police officer. And I remember it was a nice summer day like this, and I had both my windows rolled down, and I got called to a home invasion, which is somebody breaking into a home. So I was driving down Telegraph to go to this home invasion. And there were two routes I could have taken. I could have went straight and then did a turnaround and then went, or I could have just safely turned on my lights, turned left on a prohibited turn, and then go to where the home invasion was happening. And so I chose to go the safest and the quickest route. Well, I can remember, because my windows were rolled down, I can remember turning on my lights, making sure that there was no traffic coming the other way, and I turned and made the prohibited turn, and just as I was doing it, I heard somebody driving by me and saying, man, I wish I could do that. And so I was thinking to myself, you know, this person who yelled out and was angry because I made that prohibited turn didn't have the whole story in front of them. They had no idea what I was doing or where I was going. They just had it in their head from what they saw at that moment that I was doing something wrong. And I think it probably would have been a completely different story if I was going to their house that was being robbed. And so many times we take Scripture out of context and we don't read God's Word as a whole. And so then we run into not knowing the whole story and not knowing what's happening behind the scenes with God. And so in 1 Peter 3.18 we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I don't think there's any better illustration of unjust suffering in our minds than that exists with Jesus. He suffered for our sins once and for all. They were not his sins, but ours. 
He is the just one who died for the unjust, us, to bring people to God. God has pronounced we who are in Christ not guilty. Our sin has been paid full, and I'm so thankful that he does not hold them against us. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just imagine that you've been convicted of a crime, and you are about to go to death row, but the judge says, not guilty. Let him or her go free. What would that mean to you if you heard that, knowing that you were guilty? The reality is that we're all guilty, and we all stand on death row condemned for repeatedly breaking God's holy law. But thank God we've been washed clean by the precious blood of Jesus. And he has declared us not guilty and he's offered us freedom from our sin bondage. We also see in both the Old and the New Testament that God is compassionate. Isaiah 30, 18 says, So the Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God Blessed are those who wait for his help. I love this verse. So Isaiah here, before he was describing Israel's rebellion, and he promised judgment, but then here he turns that message into a message of hope. He's giving them a hopeful offer of deliverance. This is who God is. He is compassionate. He wants to pour out his grace on his people if they'll only wait on him. And we also see compassion in the New Testament with Jesus. In Matthew 9.36, when Jesus was traveling through the towns and villages, teaching and announcing the good news of the kingdom, he looked out and he saw the crowds. And the Bible says that he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. How many times have we needed to have compassion on others because they were confused about something we might have said or did. Or they didn't understand something. But then again, how many times have we been confused or didn't understand something and someone had compassion on us? It's so much easier when we have someone who explains things with compassion rather than someone who has harsh words. And so we as followers of Christ should imitate Christ and have compassion on others. Because God shows us compassion. James wrote in James 5.11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So here we see that compassion and mercy are used together to describe the Lord. All throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see a God who is compassionate, and we see a God who is merciful on his people. In a previous message, I talked about the mercy of God and how because he has been merciful to us, we should be merciful to others, and how mercy was shown to us by the cross of Christ. Jesus demonstrated compassion perfectly, and all throughout the New Testament, we see his compassion for others. Another thing that we see is that God is faithful. Think about it. Being faithful is a wonderful attribute. 
when we're married, we want to have a faithful spouse who's completely committed to us. In our friendships, we should look for people who will remain faithful to us and stand by us through thick and thin. So when we begin relationships in our lives, faithfulness is one of the key things that we usually look for in a person. If you think about it, faithfulness affects every single relationship that we have. And the Bible tells us clearly that faithfulness is a gift from God. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells in us. And as Galatians 5.22 says, the Holy Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness into our lives. And so I looked up the word faithful while I was writing this, and several words came up with the search. And some of them were loyal, devoted, unwavering, trustworthy. And all of these words describe who God is. He's loyal. He's devoted. He is unwavering and trustworthy. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love and obey his commands. Israel was to reflect the nature of their God just as we are today. They were to always remember that he's been the faithful God. He's been faithful to his covenant. He was faithful to his promises that he made to them. And he loved them. And he was going to love them forever. So just as he was faithful to them, and he's faithful to us today, we should be faithful to him, just as he expected Israel to remain faithful to him. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God will do this, for he is faithful to what he says, and he has invited you into partnership with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul also wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. So Paul not only prayed for comfort and strength that the Thessalonian believers needed, but he knew that the Lord is faithful in hearing his prayers, just as the Israelites knew that the Lord was faithful to them in the Old Testament. And we today can have comfort, peace, and strength knowing that the Lord is faithful to us. Another attribute of God that we see in the Old and the New Testament is that God is jealous. And so this statement right here, that God is jealous, it gets attacked by the world. Because in the world, and even sometimes with us, jealousy is a bad thing. It's seen as a bad thing or it's seen as it's wrong. But as we see in the Hebrew, the words jealous God is Elgana, which expresses passion or caring. And it's most often time used in connection to a relationship you would have in a marriage. And so in the Old Testament, we see that God considered the Israelites to be his marriage partner. And he wanted them to be devoted only to him. And so then in Exodus 34, 14, we read, 
you must worship no other gods. For the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. Now this is not an overly possessive jealousy or an unhealthy jealousy that we see. And it's not something that we might think when we hear that word jealousy. But when we hear that our God is a jealous God, it means that he is justly protective of his own honor and his proper and fitting devotion of his people. And I think that the misunderstanding sometimes with Christians comes that when we read in Galatians 5.20, it shows that jealousy is described as a sin. But that kind of jealousy is a worldly jealousy, like being envious or jealous of someone because of something that they have or something that they can do that we can't do. But as we can see from the Hebrew word that's used here for the word jealous, it means that he's not envious or jealous because someone has something he wants or needs. He is jealous because someone gives to another something that rightly belongs to him. When, Israelites, when the Israelites were making the idols and bowing down to them and worshiping them and taking on the pagan traditions of their neighbors, instead of giving their God, the true God, the worship that belonged to him alone, God was right to be jealous of this. And even Paul wrote about the jealousy of God, which characterizes God and how we as believers in Christ should be. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, he writes, For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. So Paul had compassion and love and a godly jealousy for the Corinthians. And he wanted to keep them pure. And he wanted to keep them exclusively devoted to Christ until Christ came back for them. I look at it this way. If a husband or a wife sees their spouse flirting or getting a little bit too comfortable with somebody else from the opposite sex, they absolutely have the right to be jealous of that. Because only a husband or wife has that right to have that type of relationship with their spouse. It's not a sinful jealousy. And this type of jealousy that is used in the context of God being a jealous God, that's the type of context that we see there. And because we are his, he has the right to be jealous when we worship and praise and honor something other than him. And we give that honor to other things or other people. Because God is truly worthy of our worship. But if you're a man or if you're a woman who's married and you're jealous of your friend's spouse or if you desire something or someone else that does not belong to you, then that's the sinful jealousy. We also see that God is patient. This is another one that's very misunderstood. And one of the misunderstandings that I see about God in this is that a lot of people think that God is actually impatient. And so many people, when they read God's word out of context or when they don't read the full account of something, they say that God is not patient. But that's when we say things like that, we're applying human limits and human definitions on the patience of God. 
And so many people find it hard to reconcile God's justice with his patience. And so in the Greek, the word for patience is makrothomia, which means patience or long-suffering. We see God's patience and long-suffering right in the beginning of his word. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned, God didn't rush right into the garden yelling and screaming at them and telling them what horrible people they were. He didn't go into the garden and strike them dead. No, what did he do? He walked into the garden where Adam and Eve were, and he called out for Adam. It was Adam and Eve who hid from God because they knew what they did was wrong. And so we do see that there are consequences for their sin, just as like there's consequences for our sin. But God was patient with them. God's patience and grace that we see in the Old Testament should bring us comfort. Right from the beginning, all throughout, we see not only his patience and long-suffering for his people, but he was also patient to the people all around Israel. And he was waiting for them to come and worship him and be obedient to him. And so God demonstrated his love, his mercy, and his patience when he waited 400 years for the Amorites to turn to, from their wickedness and turn to him and be forgiven. 400 years is a long time. We as parents have a hard time waiting 10 minutes for our children to do something that we've asked them to do. And so we see that the Amorites and the Canaanites and all those other that were around Israel, they all had a chance to repent and be saved. God was very patient before, they, before he judged them. And so one thing that people often miss in the story of God judging these people is that it didn't just happen right away in the beginning with them. And this all began in the beginning of God's word with God's promises. And it's just like watching a movie or watching the news. We have to look at the whole story. And so we have to know the whole story and not just take bits and pieces from the story and take it out of context. And so that's how we need to read our Bible to understand God completely. So when we read the entire Bible from the beginning, we can clearly see that God is extremely patient. And he does not bring judgment on the Amorites for just the one sin or even 100 years of sin. God waits and he waits and he waits and he waits for the nations to turn from their sin. And because God is just, he waits these hundreds of years until their sins get completely out of control. And then he has to judge. It's kind of like our justice system today. You know, we use our resources to try and rehabilitate these criminals. And we have these three strikes and you're out programs. Hoping that the criminal will turn from their life of crime. But sometimes the crime gets so bad and the criminal is unable to re be re rehabilitated that the judge has to righteously judge the person to life in prison or sometimes even death. And in Romans uh, 2.4, Paul wrote, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? It's in his patience and goodness that, God's, that God holds back his judgment on us. He's giving people time to repent and turn from their sin and trust him as their Lord and Savior. Because as we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord does not want anyone to perish. He wants all to reach repentance. 
God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But it is in his mercy he gives you time to repent. Will you take hold of his promise today and repent of your sins and trust him as your Savior? And so these are only a few of the attributes of God that I put on here that I wanted to focus on. And there's so many other of them. And because we also see that God is righteous. He's merciful. He's good. He's loving. He's holy. And so what I've done was I wrote down all these attributes along with scriptures to the references in the notes and the app on the app and the website um, for you to go back and look at and write down. And then the Bible verses are right next to it so you can read and study um, and learn about God's attributes there. But finally, I want to talk about how the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation tells one story. And the word is perfect and it's completely true, all of it. We love stories. We love to hear and we love to tell stories. When we meet someone we want to pursue a relationship with, either as a friend or maybe in a romantic way, we want to know their story. We want to know where they come from and what their family is like. We ask them to tell, we ask them all the time, tell me your story. In the same way, when we became followers of Christ, we want to know everything we can about God. And the way that we can do that is by reading and studying his word. The Bible tells a story of a perfect, loving God and how he uses imperfect people for his intended purpose. When we read the Bible, we see several themes that run through it, but it's one unified story of redemption. And so God, because of his grace and goodness, has been redeeming man ever since. And we see that woven throughout the whole Old Testament into the New Testament, where God continues to restore man in his broken relationship with him and promising to fulfill, to fully redeem his people at the final resurrection. So the whole Bible is God's story. It's a beautiful story about Christ and is a story of God's love for humanity. And it all centers around the promised Redeemer. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemption story. Jesus is the one God promised in the Old Testament and the one he provided in the New Testament. It's the cross that stands right in the middle of God's story of redemption. The Old Testament saints look forward to it in faith, and the New Testament believers look back to it in faith. I'm going to leave you with this. A Scottish expositor, William Barclay, once wrote, The cross is the proof that there's no length to which the love of God will refuse to go. In order to win men's heart, the cross is the final proof of the love of God. And a love like that demands an answering love. If the cross will not waken love and wonder in men's heart, nothing will. It's my hope that you and your heart becomes awakened to the immense love that God has for you. And that when you read the word of God, you will see that not only is the God the same, but from the beginning of creation to the cross, God had you on his mind. Even right now, he wants to have a relationship with you. Amen. Thank you, Keith, so much. What a great message. And, you know, if you'll look at the conclusion of Keith's outline, you'll also see where he made some excellent recommendations. If God, Why Evil by Norm Geisler is an excellent resource. And then, of course, we've recommended many times around the church here uh, the book by um, 
uh, evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. So I'd encourage you to avail yourself of both of those resources and study. All of this message was great, Keith. Thank you. But the one point that you made that really resonated with me is that when you search out an answer for a friend of yours, if they ask you a question about the Bible or the gospel or something you don't understand, when you search that out and you help them, or maybe you call someone that you feel like, like your pastor or your small group leader or the person that discipled you, can you help me with this question? You're going to find yourself growing and you'll find yourself being a blessing to others as well. Well, let's pray this evening, and I know the heart of Keith. He's a great preacher, but I believe that he also wants, that if you're watching by chance tonight and you've never crossed the line and you've never given your heart to Jesus, why don't you do that right now? And I think one of the most comforting passages that he shared tonight, it wasn't true for me when I was young because like Keith, I didn't understand it. But knowing that God is a jealous God, wow. We sing a song here, he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. You know, my dad was jealous of our family. He loved us, protected us, provided for us. He gave us lots of liberty and lots of freedom. But my dad was jealous for us. I'm jealous for my wife, I'm my children, my congregation. How much more jealous you are precious to God. That's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins so that you don't have to go to hell. That's how much he loves you. He literally runs into that burning building, that burning place. Jesus descended into the very pits of hell in order to save you from your sins. So I pray tonight you'll put your faith, you'll put your trust in Jesus, and you can do that right now. Why don't you pray with me? And Keith and I are just going to agree together right now. Father, for our friends that are listening tonight, and I don't know who all is listening, but there may be someone out there, or they're going to watch later after this is already posted online. God, there's going to be a desire to give their heart to you, to ask you to forgive them of their sins. Would you remind them right now that, Lord, that's your spirit at work in their hearts because they wouldn't even want to do this unless the Lord was drawing them. So I pray that you will help them to pray this prayer with me. And why don't you just pray this and pray it to the Lord and mean it. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I've never really known you. I've never really given my life to you. But tonight I recognize how much you love me. And I recognize that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. I thank you that you are not insecurely jealous, but that you are jealous with an overwhelming love for all of us. And I commit my life to you as much as I know how. Forgive me of my sins, for I believe that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, died upon the cross for my sins, was resurrected on the third day, ascended to the Father, and one day you're coming again. I love you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, please let us know here at Woodland Church. We have something we'd love to send you to help you get started with your walk of faith in Christ. And by the way, if you're part of Woodland and you're watching this tonight, please don't forget to sign up for the services. You can go online. Uh, there's been some communication already sent out, but you can also go to our website, sign up online, or use our app. You can get it at the App Store, or you can get it at Google Store, Woodland Church Mobile, and then register for the service. Timber Ridge will start again Sunday morning. There's a big tent on the ball field for that. And if you have it already, please tonight 
go online or text 77977, keyword Woodland Church, all one word, no space between Woodland and church, and share your tithe and share your offerings this evening so that we can continue to serve the Lord. We love you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And Keith, thank you for a powerful message.